0: Friends, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and to turn to Genesis chapter 1. As for the second week in a row, we return to this gorgeous passage of Scripture, one of the most beautiful and creative in all of the Bible. Please turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be spending our time together this morning in the entire chapter as you're turning to Genesis 1. I want to turn back to a uh, a little uh, phase of my former life as a graduate student when I used to spend a good bit of my time studying at Bongo Java over on Belmont Boulevard. Back in those days, that particular branch of Bongo Java was famous not just for its exquisite coffee. It was famous also for its nun bun. I wonder if any of you guys remember the nun bun? Show of hands, anybody remember it? It's not actually a hairstyle. The nun bun was a pastry, Uh, and not just any pastry, a pastry, sort of cinnamon roll-like, that came out of the oven one fateful day, bearing a remarkable resemblance to Mother Teresa in her final years. People came from all over to see the nun bun. I actually saw it years after its creation. Uh, in a display case that was just set on the wall in perpetuity for people to come and to admire. And they had it right there side by side with, a, with, a, with an old picture of Mother Teresa. And I mean, right there side by side, I guess you could kind of see what they were talking about. There was a certain swirl of, of dough that could look something like a chin and, and another little swirl that looked a, a little bit like the shape of a nose, maybe. I mean, you saw it and you thought, hmm, how about that? What are the chances? Isn't that interesting? Around that same time, I got to take a trip to to Paris and spent a lot of time at the Louvre Museum. And among many other things that I saw in that museum, I got to see the infamous Mona Lisa painting. Now, I can't explain to you all the factors that make that painting the masterpiece that it is, one of the most beloved and celebrated paintings in the history of the world. I actually don't get all of it. I mean, it did It look to me like a lot of other paintings that were all over the walls of that museum. I mean, the only thing that made it really noticeable was that it was covered up with swarms of tourists trying to take little pictures of it, you know, with their, with their cameras to claim it for themselves. I can't explain to you everything that makes the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa, but even I, can tell that well, this is a this is beautiful work of a gifted artist right here. I mean, look what they did with with the light, with the perspective of the you know, the, the the person in the front and the backdrop behind her, and look what they did with the, the the face, the unbelievable human features. I mean, the thing people talk about with the Mona Lisa is that expression, the deep feeling behind it, that little smirk. I mean, you don't have to be an art expert to look at that painting and say, I didn't come from spilled paint. That portrait's good. On this canvas, an artist who knew what he was doing did exactly what he set out to do. Now, friends, one of the most important questions any of us is ever going to answer, one of the most important questions any one of us will ever answer is whether or not our world is more like the nun bun or more like the Mona Lisa. The answer to that question is going to shape every level of your life and how you experience this world. And the resounding answer of Christianity rooted in the Bible, first of all, in the text we're going to look at this morning is that this world that we live in... It, It's not a product of some sort of interesting happenstance. It's a product of God's careful and intentional and creative design. And therefore the world as God made it, it's good. This is a good world that we live in. This morning I want to just show you how this text answers this question and what this text means for who we are as humans. I want to begin by reading it. Hopefully you found it by now. We're going to read together from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I want to ask you, if you're able, to please stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read to us the first chapter of Genesis. This is the Word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, to understand what's going on in this chapter and what we've just read, it's important to know that Genesis was written to answer Israel's questions, not our questions. Now, we can't help coming to Genesis 1 on the backside of of modern science and all that it's brought us of of Charles Darwin and all that he argued for and more than a century of scientific discovery that we can't help wondering how to square up with what we've just read i, I think we living in 2022 tend to come to a passage like this one with questions about well with, with with questions about the 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 when and the how when did all this come to be and how by what process did it come to be and and Genesis chapter 1 is written with much more interest in the, the who and the what. Not the when and the how, but the who. Who's behind everything that is? And what? What did this person make? Last week we talked about this same text as God's propaganda against paganism, the paganism of Israel's neighbors. This text was written to pick a fight with their main ideas about how the world works. And I want to go deeper into that claim today by trying to pick apart this text in the way that it was meant to be received in Israel's time setting aside some of the questions that, that we're just inevitably going to have about this text in our time, not because those questions don't matter, but because those aren't for this particular sermon. There are questions that if, if you have them, I'd love to talk to you about after today and even to suggest some readings for you on the relationship between faith and science that, that I know may, may stir a lot of questions for you guys. I'd be happy to have that conversation. But what I want to do this morning with this text is, is talk about what it claims about the nature of the world and then about what that means for how we live in this world as human beings, as creations of of God for this place that he's put us. I want to make this morning three claims about the world and draw four implications for who we are. From Genesis chapter one, three claims about the world and four implications for who we are. Considering this series in what it means to be human, drawing from the first three chapters of the Bible. So let me first give you three claims about the world. These all come from Genesis chapter one. And here's the first one. Hopefully it's the most obvious, but we have to start here because everything else flows from it. Claim number one about the world from Genesis chapter one is that God made everything. God made everything. In other words, this world is not full of God's, it's full of God's creatures. Verse one sums this up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's God and then there's everything else. And then for the rest of this chapter, the author is filling in this big picture with one detail after another meant to strike back against the gods of the nations. See, Israel's neighbors, they all saw the heavens as the dwelling place of the most high gods. But, but Genesis says that God created the heavens themselves that he marked off the heavens exactly as he intended. He even gave them their name, heaven, verse 3, because he rules over them. The heavens belong to him. Israel's neighbors saw the sea as this chaotic and wild divine power that no one could control. Genesis comes in and says, no, God piled up the waters into a heap and named them seas, verse 10. As the Lord puts it himself in Job 38, God says to the seas, you may come this far and no further. Here your proud waves must stop, the Lord says in Job 38. I love that. Israel's neighbors believed that there were gods behind a good harvest. If you wanted your crops to come in or if if you wanted to have children. There were fertility gods that you would sacrifice to, pray to, try to serve, all sorts of fertility gods that you could turn to. But in verse 11, it is God who says, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing their fruit. All fertility depends on him. Israel's neighbors believed the sun was a god, along with all the other planets and all the other stars. They developed charts to track their movements. They were super into astrology. But in verse 14, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And and it's so. In verse 16, God makes the two great lights and all the stars. Can you see what this author is doing? He's picking a fight. He's making an argument. Their gods are no gods. They're creatures of the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Genesis 1 is meant to make the claim that God made everything. That's claim number one about the world. Claim number two about the world is that God made everything exactly the way he wanted it. God made everything exactly the way he wanted it. It takes us one step further into the beauty of this text, this passage is organized using the best literary tools that were available at the time to show that God made everything. And when he did it, he was in complete control and did exactly what he set out to do. This passage is exquisite. If we all could just take the next five years to learn Hebrew... And then to use our Hebrew skills to to read other ancient texts from the surrounding nations, we would be able to see into just how beautiful, how magnificent this passage is. It's not just telling us what's true. Not just telling us that God is in control of everything. It's meaning to show us by leveraging the artistry behind this poem. You can, see, you can see the complete control that the Lord exerts over the things that he made just by the fact that he speaks and what he says is done. Other old creation accounts that were swirling around Israel's time, they, they usually featured struggle. Different gods in the world already there fighting with one another. And then this, what we see around us is a result one way or another. It just, it comes as a fallout from the, from the, the, the contest of the gods. It's not what they really wanted it to be. It's just what was the creation of the, of the world is sort of like the creation of the U.S. Constitution. You know, it's a process of negotiation and compromise. Lots of different competing agendas coming together to, to do the best they could with, with what they had to work with. That's the world, according to Israel's neighbor's accounts. But God, he speaks and it's done. It is exactly what he means it to be. And then to show us that everything he made fits his design perfectly, the author of this text He just pulls out all the stops. It's one thing, friends, to say, I love you. It's another thing to say I love you the way poet Elizabeth Browning says, I love you. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when flying out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee with breath. Smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall, lo- I shall but love thee better after death. You could say to somebody, I really miss you. Or you could say to somebody, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. You can tell somebody something. Or you can show somebody something. And for, if something so incredible as the creation of the world out of nothing, the author of Genesis chapter 1 doesn't simply say God created the heavens and the earth. And he doesn't even simply say everything that is fits God's perfect design. He doesn't just tell us what's true. He uses poetic imagery to show us what's true. Will you bear with me as I walk you a couple layers deeper into this amazing passage? Think about verse 1 as the summary. This is the statement. This is what he wants to tell you. God created the heavens and the earth. And then beginning in verse 2, he starts to fill in the picture. In verse 2, we begin with attention. The earth is without form, we're told, and void, formless and empty. He's not really interested in how this happened. It's not something that the author's focusing on. What matters is that the rest of the poem is responding to that reality. On the first three days of creation, God pushes back on the the formlessness. He brings form and order to to, to this world that was formless. He creates light amidst darkness. He separates them from one another. He, He separates heaven from earth and land from sea. He's ordering things just as he means to. And then he pushes back against the void on days four to six. What was empty, he fills up. He fills up the light and the dark with the sun and the moon and the stars. He fills up the sea with sea creatures. He fills the air with birds. He fills the land with vegetation and with animal life. He's drawing this intentional parallel here between what happens on days one to three and what happens on days four to six. On day one, he creates light. On day four, he creates the lights themselves. On day two, he separates earth and heaven. On day five, he fills the air and the sea with creatures. You can see what he's doing. He's making art. There's even deeper symbolism here. Here we go. This is the last layer in I'm going to take you. And then we're going to pull back up for some air. This is something you could only see about this amazing text if you knew Hebrew. But ancient poetry from this time in the world and all throughout the Old Testament, there was a strong reliance on symbols, especially numbers, to make your point. In Hebrew poetry, the number seven represents completeness and perfection something that's exactly what it ought to be. And this whole poem from the beginning to the end is built on that number and it's multiples. In the Hebrew, the first verse has exactly seven words. The second verse has exactly 14 words. The name of God in this passage is mentioned exactly 35 times. Heaven and earth are mentioned 21 times each. And perhaps the best and most obvious example of this creation itself is described as playing out over seven days. The point of this number as the structure of this poem is that God created everything. He created it completely. He created it perfectly. It's exactly what he wanted it to be. Why all this detail? Why am I going to this trouble to show you what's going on beneath the surface of this passage? Friends, it's because it's to understand the point of a text, you need to understand what kind of text it is. This isn't the notebook of some naturalist out there recording data from one of his experiments. This is a love song written to celebrate the God who made everything. The God who made the world exactly as he wanted it to be. Which brings us to claim number three. Claim number one is that God made everything. Claim number two is that God made everything exactly as he wanted it to be. And claim number three is that everything as God made it, is good. Everything, as God made it, is good. Because it's exactly as he wanted it to be, the world as God made it is good. And one of the another, one last trick of Hebrew poetry to pay attention to is you look for repetition. What happens over and over? That's where you can find the main point. And in this text, at the conclusion of every phase, God looks down on what he's made, and he declares it's good verse 10 God saw that it was good verse 12 God saw that it was good verse 18 God saw that it was good verse 21 God saw that it was good verse 25 God saw that it was good and verse 31 standing back taken in the hole God looks and he sees oh that is very good that is perfect and complete lacking nothing what God is saying over what he has made is that he loves what he sees. It delights him. But he's even saying more than that. He's, he's not just making a subjective statement about his own personal preferences. He's not saying that he likes Pepsi or Coke better or DC over Marvel. They, he's saying, no, he's saying something objective. This world is objectively good it is what he wanted it to be and he made it this way so that it could flourish so that it could thrive so that it could function well god made everything he made it exactly as he wanted it to be and therefore everything that god made is good those are the claims about the world from genesis chapter one so what do we do with them right now we're in the middle of a series on what it means to be human We're laying the foundations for that series so that we can go into deeper and deeper detail in the weeks still to come this spring. But I wanna go ahead and start pointing us towards where we're headed this morning with four implications for us from what Genesis chapter one tells us about the world. Here's number one. What does it mean to live in a world that is good as God designed it? What does it mean for us as humans that this world is good? Number one. Well, friends, we should, we should be grateful for the dignity God has assigned to us. We ought to be grateful that God made us good because he did. A human being is an absolutely incredible thing. There is nothing else like it under heaven. Nothing else like you in all this vast and good world. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. Think of this as a teaser. But did you notice that this whole chapter builds with more and more, more, and more expectation toward the creation of, of humanity at the climax of all of it? That it's only after God is made male and female in his image does He look and see that, that everything he's made is very good. Friends, Christians have a better reason than anyone else to celebrate the wonder of every human life and of all human life. To pay attention to to what humans are capable of and marvel at it. Think of the the art. Think of what what a human mind can, can imagine and then bring to be into the world. The music, the painting, the buildings like this one. Think of the stunning inner life of a human being. Just read a good novel, and if it's, if, it's, if it's anywhere close to reality, you will be amazed at what goes on inside of one person. Just pick one. There is a complexity and a, and a power to human life that you won't find anywhere else. And, and friends, when we're, when we're building our case for what it means to be human, it, it matters that, that we don't start with sin, that we don't start with fallenness or what's broken about us. No human being can be boiled down to the worst things about them or the worst things that they've done. We, it's, of course it's true we can't understand ourselves without taking sin seriously. And we're going to. That's a big part of this series. But that isn't where the Bible begins. It doesn't begin with Genesis 3. The Bible begins with the very good of Genesis 1. And it honors our maker when we celebrate the goodness he's put into those who bear his image like we do. Because every human being reflects something of his beauty. Uh, Let me push this one step further. We need to begin with the goodness of of how God made us as humans before we can fully understand the beauty of the gospel. On one hand, at the core of the gospel is the reality that this world is broken and that we've broken it, that we are sinners. Who have received from God so many good gifts, but have chosen rather than worship him, to, to, to worship the gifts and, and to put ourselves in a position of authority over him and what we do in this world that he made. That's true. But celebrating the goodness of human life helps us understand one reason sin is so grievous. Because sin mars, it sin defaces what God created as so very good. Did you know that in 1974? Somebody spray painted graffiti on the Mona Lisa. That really happened. It was on loan at a museum in Tokyo, and somebody took a, pan, a, 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 a can of red spray paint, sprayed all over it. You spray graffiti on the underside of an overpass. I mean, some folks would call that art. Actually, you're improving it. You know, it's just blank gray concrete. Gives us something to look at when we pass through. You spray graffiti on the Mona Lisa, that's a different thing altogether. That's grievous because it's a masterpiece that you're messing with. Not only does sin defy the the good God who's the giver of all life, it debilitates the crown of his good creation. It unleashes death and shame and blame shifting and hate and violence toward one another with our bodies and in our hearts and our words. In other words, the goodness of human life is what makes the sense of, of seriousness of our sin weigh on us the way it ought to. It helps, us, helps sin to register with us the way it registers with God. And then on the other hand, seeing the goodness of what it is to be human as God made us to be helps us to understand the beauty of what God has done to redeem us in His grace. It was because God so loved the world A world full of humans that he made in his image. That he sent his only son so that everyone who believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Friends, there's no more powerful statement of the goodness of what God made than his decision to enter our world as a human to redeem us out of the mess that we've made here. In fact, one of the the oldest Christian books about the incarnation, about why God put on flesh, dwelt among us, a book named by, by a man named Athanasius. It, it, it describes Christ coming into the world as the work of an artist repairing or renewing a masterpiece that's been obliterated. That's his main metaphor. What happens when a portrait's been stained? Athanasius asks. Well, here's the quote. The artist doesn't throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come sit for it again. And then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. And even so it was with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that He might renew us made after Himself and seek out His lost sheep, even as He says in the gospel, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. There's so much more we could say about this. We will starting next week. But for now, what does it mean? To live as humans in this world that is good as God made it. It means living with gratitude for the dignity God assigned to all of us. A dignity that he, in his grace, through his son Jesus, has acted to restore through what he achieved on our behalf. We should embrace this dignity. We should should be grateful for it. Number two second implication for us of what we've seen about the world from Genesis chapter 1. We should also embrace God's design for us. If this world is good as God made it, we ought to embrace the design that he's given to us. Later in this series, we're going to talk a lot about the purpose for human life. I mean, just first of all, that there is one, and it's not ours to define for ourselves. Uh, we're, We're going to talk about gender as part of God's creation, as an intentional design and not a mistake not a negotiable starting point for how we build our identities. We're going to talk about marriage and sexuality and the difference between sexual practice that honors God and, and that that doesn't. And a couple weeks ago, we, we tried to lay some groundwork from that by talking about the fact that, that because our, all of our lives we owe to God, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Him. He has the right or the authority to define who we are. And that's an important thing to say. We need to start there. But what we're seeing today fills in the picture even more. If God's world is exactly as he meant it to be, and if it is good, then that means that, that, that the, the boundaries God sets for us, the designs he gives to us, they're not arbitrary ones. They're good. We embrace these designs not because we have to, but because they're our path to flourishing. That just as God gave to the earth this sprouting forth of vegetation just, just as he's bringing out flourishing and, fr- and, and, and thriving from this world that he made, so through his designs for us, he intends for us to flourish. He wants good for us. And that's why he gives us these boundaries. We're going to see that from the very beginning, sin feeds on a lie that God's ways are here to hold us back. That they're, that they're against our happiness or our flourishing. And we want to reject that lie together. We want to be able to hold out the hope that, 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 that because he is good, everything that he's made is good. And everything he's called us to will be good for us, not just obedient to him. We should embrace God's design for us. Third, we should enjoy God's gifts to us. If this world is good as God made it, that means we ought to enjoy His good gifts to us. Part of our purpose as humans is to enjoy this good world God made. Wherever he gives us a chance to. That's our role. That's what he put us here for. He wants us to see in his work what he sees in his work. He wants us to enjoy it the way he enjoys it. The Bible tells us that the whole earth is full of his glory. And last week I talked about Habakkuk 2.14. Takes this idea one step forward. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled not just with the glory of the Lord, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where we come in. We were put here to appreciate his glory and the goodness of what he's made. Think of God as the chef and we're his taste testers. It's part of the very goodness of humanity. Of of, of how he made us unique in all of his creation, that we have the ability to see and to savor his glory all around us. One time we made the mistake of taking our dog to the beach. We left him in the house, he barked his head off, surely to the torment of our neighbors. We took him to the beach, he was completely lost on him. I mean, he noticed the sand. It wasn't quite what he was used to stepping on, but he didn't even bother to look up and gaze at the vastness of the ocean. He didn't sit with transcendental wonder and awe at the bigness of it all. He didn't think about his own life as a speck in this vastness that he'd been placed in. He didn't do what humans do when they plop down on their blanket or in their beach chair and just stare. That's not his role. We were made for that, not him. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to know. When, when, when Genesis was first written, Israel needed to know the world wasn't enchanted in the way that their neighbors thought it was. When they looked around, they needed to know these things aren't gods. The sun, the, the, the planets, the stars, the sea. They're God's creatures. There's only one God. But we need a different challenge now. Sometimes we need to be shaken up and reminded that it's our calling in life to recognize that this world is full of the goodness of God. That in other words, it's more enchanted than we act like it is. We know so much now about how the world works. You know, we got material causes for everything. And and there's there's a precise way to explain how our brains process light from a specific angle under specific conditions to make it look like the sky's on fire as the sun sets. We could break that all down if we wanted to. But we know so much about that that we can all too easily glance up at that sunset and see nothing but the nun bun. Kind of an interesting, even remarkable happenstance. Probably just can't compete with whatever we've got on our phone screens in front of us at the moment. Genesis 1, it, it teaches us to look up and look through that beautiful sunset to the God who hung it up there to get through to us. It is a personal and intentional and good gift from God to us. It is a message of love meant to be received. There's, there's this wonderful C.S. Lewis essay where he talks about nature as it comes up in the Psalms over and over uh, as, as a reason to praise the Lord. And he says, you know, when you, when you put out of the world all those divinities that, they, that the pagans had filled it with, what you can fill it with then is deity, with God everywhere. And then nature becomes, he says, a bearer of messages. That son is not a God, but it's not a nun bun either. It's a gift from the God who made it, the God who made me, and the God who gave me and you a unique ability to read these love letters that he's filled his world with. We We ought to enjoy God's good gifts as part of what it means to have a uniquely human relationship with him in this good world that he's made and that brings me to the last thing the last implication where we close this morning Here's one more we should hunger for God's presence with us what it means to live as a human in this good world God made is to hunger for God's presence with us here's what I mean Genesis 1 is very clear that God made this world good. But the whole Bible is very clear that this world isn't good enough, not for us. And it wasn't supposed to be. The goodness of this world as God made it was always meant to be an appetizer and an invitation to something much, much, much better. Because the goodness of this world communicates mediated messages to us from the one who is good. But we are made to crave the direct presence of the good one himself. I don't know what heaven will be like. Not really. None of us can get our minds around it. But I'll tell you this, friends. Every trace of goodness we experience now has its source in God. And on that day, we're going to see him as he is in all his glory. So. That means heaven's gonna be a little bit like what we love in this world, but way, way, way better. To be with him as he is compared to what we love now. It's probably a little bit like the difference between seeing your friends on Zoom and hugging your friends in person. Or the difference between smelling chocolate chip cookies and eating them soaked in milk. Or the difference maybe between hearing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony come across as a cell phone ringtone, or hearing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony performed by the Nashville Symphony in the Skirmerhorn. Or let me switch to the metaphors the Bible gives us. Revelation says, when we when we are with him, when he brings his heaven to our earth, that we won't even need the sun anymore because the Lord will be our light. You know what that says? that the sun right now is a little bit like what he is like to be with only he is way better can you imagine more life giving than the sun warmer in a good way than the sun more illuminating more clarifying we see by him we won't even need the sun cuz we'll have him or 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 the bible uses the metaphor of marriage to describe what it is to be with god so, so, so to so be with him, to have his presence with us will be something like the joy of sex and a healthy marriage, but more intimate, more infinitely pleasurable. Or the Bible says it'll be a little bit like a wedding party, a banquet, a reception. Can you imagine it? Like one massive wedding reception with all your favorite people, but even more satisfying and absolutely unending. Friends, what I'm saying is we don't have to deny the goodness of this world that God made to long for the new world that he's promised to us. Of course, idolatry is a real problem. We might worship the gifts that he's given us in this world. We should not do that. And of course, worldliness is a real problem. We might give our hearts to what we build for ourselves here and try our best to get out of life everything we can possibly get as if it's going to last forever. That might pull our hearts away from God and away from our neighbors We have to be careful, though, not to throw out the the peel or the banana with the peel or the baby with the bathwater. The the question isn't whether we're going to love this world or love the world to come. The, The question is whether we love God. If we love God, we can enjoy him now through what's good here and now. It comes from him. It tells us about him. It communicates his goodness to us. And if we love God, when we enjoy what we love through him now, it can only stir our hunger for even more of him there. In other words, the the goodness of this good world God made can be heaven's appetizer, not its competition. If God is our focus, if he is what we want, well, then we enjoy him here through the goodness of this world and long for more of him there where we'll be with him completely. Will you pray with me now that he will do that in us? Father, we ask you to give us the ability to receive the good gifts you've given in this good world that you've made and to fulfill our role as humans to be those who notice and savor your goodness all around us. We pray that you protect us from hearts that will idolize what you've given us and give us hearts that long for you through what you've given us. And we pray that you would bring about all that you've promised to and be with us fully and completely through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.